we're based in San Francisco in the Mission District. We started by colliding games and film together. So we didn't even really know what it meant when Zach first asked us. We're now working with AI engineers to do predictive math in terms of the intention of the audience. We needed you to participate in that story. We can use body language, or we can use dance, or we can use theatrical lighting. We've sort of been granted these superpowers, I feel like. There's just so much power in being able to feel emotion viscerally. You feel like you're there with your best friend about to embark on this adventure through sound, through presence, through misdirection. You know, it's, it was immersive theater that really led us down the right path. He does throw out these sort of grandiose ideas. If a character has an ongoing memory of you, character does make a lot of sense as the way that we will interface the world. I have to give myself permission to think about the future. Hi, I'm Nathaniel Skye, the host of the Immersion Nation podcast. Here, the masters of immersive experience create and conjure, muse and imagine the cultural revolution that is unfolding before us. That is immersive entertainment. Welcome. Hello, hello. I wanted to take just a little extra time to introduce this week's guest, one Pete Billington. Pete's career started in 2002, working on Star Wars Attack of the Clones. From there, he worked on The Matrix Reloaded, War of the Worlds, and Polar Express, just to name a few of the projects he's been involved in. Pete had lived on the edge of visual storytelling and wanted to stay there, so he jumped headfirst into VR, joining the Oculus story team. When it was decided by the Facebook overlords that the story team would be dissolved, Pete decided that the gloves were coming off. Instead of letting the team that they had worked with for so long disperse into the entertainment ether, the team decided to continue the project they were in the midst of. Well, how better to do that than to co-found your own VR company? Thus, Fable Studios was born. Pete and the Fable team are no longer on the edge of visual media. It's safe to say that they are, indeed, in the business of defining it. Please enjoy this conversation with Pete Billington. All right. Pete, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Of course, of course. Um, appreciate you taking the time today. Uh, as is tradition, I think we'll start with a brief question about um, your favorite fictional world. So if you had to choose a fictional world of some variety, fiction or fictional or fantasy world um, to live in, to spend some time in, uh, what world would that be? Yeah, it's a tough one, right? Because there's so many amazing fictional universes. And, uh, you know, I've had moments in my life where I've focused heavily on certain ones or become addicted to them. But I think Dungeons and Dragons would probably be the most interesting for me because it's just so open-ended and there's this amazing feedback loop with uh, people participating and creating the world as it goes. Um, and it's just so diverse. Uh, and I just had this sort of childhood memory of how amazing and um, so open-ended that was. Um, it's one of my favorite sort of fantasy experiences was just being this little kid and not knowing what, what was around every corner. Yeah, most definitely. And in so many ways, I kind of feel like uh, Gary Gygax really is one of the one of the fathers of immersive experience for that very reason. Totally, totally. Um, 
So I have to ask, what do you have a particular class that you um, played or typically play within D&D? We're going back a long way, and I feel like it's evolved so much from when I played. I, you know, I have all my original modules, and they're like they're not the first generation, but they are like the second generation of of D and D. And so there wasn't a lot to choose from, but I think I was obsessed with the paladin character because it was, you know, you had a little bit of magic, you had a little bit of fighter, um, you were in this adventurer, and then then reading Tolkien later on, it's like, oh, this is clearly, you know, you know, trying to. Uh, to be Aragorn at the time, probably. Um, but yeah, it oh, was, yeah. Uh, it was, uh, it was a cool class at the time. Most definitely. All right. So I'm wondering insofar as kind of explaining to listeners, um, a little bit about, uh, wolves in the walls and experience. Um, I wonder if maybe a good way to kind of get at that is starting with the, the question that, um, the, the folks from third rail asked you guys when they came in being what having, you know, now spent some time with that question is the major dramatic question uh, for wolves in the walls. Yeah. It's so interesting because when they first asked us that question, we didn't know how to answer it. The, you know, the, the studio that ultimately built wolves was, was sort of half game people from the games industry and half movie people specifically from feature animation. And we, we deal with things like, you know, what's the the game mechanic or what's the, uh, you know, the catalyst for the story or what's the, um, you know, the, the climax of the third act. But we had never heard that language around major dramatic question, which is uh, clearly a theater um, premise. And so we didn't even really know what it meant when we when when Zach first asked us that. Um, but ultimately, you know, he gave a great example of, you know, of what it was for uh, then she fell, um, which is, you know, things are going to unfold and it's up to you to decide what they mean. And we thought that that was a fascinating way to approach a project in terms of it places a lot of onus on the audience and who the audience is. And it led us to sort of casting the audience. Um, and so we kind of arrived at, you know, this is Lucy's story. We really wanted to make it about her, but we needed you to participate in that story. And so we sort of imagined you as Lucy's imaginary friend. And it's to really determine what is real and what might be imaginary. And in the end, is that important? And what can you infer about the relationships of this family um, based on what you observe and what your senses are telling you, um, which draws you further into the experience. Yeah, yeah. And it really is such an intimate space um, to be drawn into a family's home and seeing it then kind of as you were, as you have spoken to about, hey, you lose all of these cinematic techniques, but you gain this ability to see the world through the lens of this character that you're interacting with. Mm-hmm. Um you not only get the intimate space of a familial context, but you also get that through through her eyes with, you know, having the father on stage and then coming progressively closer and more accessible. Um, and then similar mechanics with the mother character. Um, and by the way, for context, um, though I am incredibly excited to do so, I have not yet experienced Wolves in the Walls. So my understanding and background knowledge is coming from 
that of say the audience who maybe has not um, participated in wolves of the wall or wolves in the walls also and also just from you know doing a little bit of research on mm-hmm. on the work as you guys have done yeah it's it's uh, it's so hard to talk about this medium um because it is so experiential and we we do lament the fact that we've lost a lot of you know traditional sc- storytelling skills but in turn we've sort of been granted these superpowers i feel like and um, we're discovering them as we go, but there are just there's just so much power in being able to feel emotion viscerally through sound, through presence, through misdirection. You know, it's it's really it's like being in a play or a theatrical play, but for one person. Like you know, if if an entire um, production was just made for you, that's what we're trying to accomplish. So you are granted all of these superpowers. And it's, again, it's just so hard to sort of talk about this in the language that we use to describe a book or, um, you know, a, a film or a, te- or a television show. Just anything with a fourth wall. Um, and yeah. for context, are you guys based in LA or San Fran? I wasn't um, quite able to figure that out. Yeah, we, uh, we're based in San Francisco in the Mission District. We have a small studio. Um, it's roughly about 20 people working on the project. Wonderful, yeah. Um, and, I mean, have you experienced much of the immersive theater stuff that's going on in L.A.? I know there's definitely some with Epic Immersive happening in the San Fran area as well. Um, yeah, I would say, you know, the two favorite places to see content are L.A. and New York, and, um, and San Francisco is a close third, uh, but L.A.'s really just got a lot of momentum right now, and there's so many cool things. I don't get down there as much as I would like to, but I've been um, sort of intentionally scheduling trips just to see theater and stuff down there. Yeah, yeah. Momentum is right. They're definitely picking up, especially coming from, you know, New York kind of being the staple initially that had Then mm-hmm. She Fell and Sleep No More, et cetera, et cetera. It's yeah. just really incredible to watch kind of the, the, mm, I'm not sure if conflation is the right word, but just the kind of intersplicing of the immersive theater world with the VR world and kind of looking at the juxtaposition between the two because so many folks from immersive theater are very much, hey, this like, VR is something that it's difficult to capture the personal context um, until I feel like you probably experience something like Wolves in the Walls, and then that just changes one's perspective quite a bit. Yeah, it was really the secret ingredient for us. I think, you know, as I mentioned, we we started by colliding games and film together, thinking that that, you know, with the real-time component of a virtual reality and the fact that you have the use of your hands specifically in wolves, like we had a lot of game type things to solve and we wanted to obviously tell a good story. So it made sense to really start from the perspective of, of like, how do you write a screenplay? But we found out that very early on the process, we were kind of both just stuck in our ways and there was a lot of, you know, good conflict in terms of like, well, we solve this through play testing and well, we solve this through radio play and through story development. And it was immersive theater that really led us down the right path in terms of how to solve a lot of these problems. Um, and that convergence was, it, it gave us just sort of a common compass reading. And we both, both factions sort of fell in love with this idea of intimacy and, that sort of special one-on-one engagement that you have in some of the best immersive theater where it feels like, man, this was just for me. Same way like a magic trick is just performed for one person a lot of the time. And 
that gave us like a lot of confidence. Um, and again, just a common language to talk about, you know, how would we solve this problem? Well, we can use body language or we can use dance or we can use theatrical lighting to solve some of the problems that are really almost unsolvable if you use these traditional film or game techniques. Um, and it's, it's a much different problem to solve when the person is in control of essentially where the camera is pointing, they're in control of their own attention span. Um, and those things are really important when you're trying to do like comedic timing or interaction. Um, so we made a lot of mistakes early on, but immersive theater was a, a really bright light for us to, to focus on. Yeah. And there's so many, like, you've spoken a lot about trust and using the trust in the character in order to keep an audience member on that golden path. Um, mm -hmm. You had mentioned that you'd kind of, or that you've had to pull out every trick in the book, so to speak, in order to, you know, make sure that people are, you know, organically going where they're supposed to go, doing what they're supposed to do, um, trusting the experience rather than trying to, you know, break it apart what what are some of those tricks that you guys used um to keep people there yeah specifically with trust i always thought it was interesting is you know you try to um you know trust the the character from a story perspective but the character also needs to trust you again if if we're asking you to play a role we really want the character to feel like they're including you in the experience and so from the very beginning of wolves the writing, you know, all of the dialogue, the moments that we introduce you to Lucy, the main character, it's about establishing a bond so that later when we're asking you to do more sophisticated things or even, you know, some scary things, um, you feel like you're there with your best friend about to embark on this adventure. Um, so that that was a huge component. But I think in terms of like all of the tricks, um, you know, we definitely look at body language a lot. We look at nonverbal communication. Um, we've coined this term emotional point of view. And because we're her imaginary friend, we sort of see the world the way that Lucy feels the world. And that means that if she's scared or even pretending to be scared, we can manipulate the space um, such that it's another nonverbal cue of how to behave in that environment or a way to connect to her, um, sort of her emotional state, but in a visual way. Um, of course, we know that sound is an incredibly pow powerful motivator. So we have this amazing audio team that's partnered with us to sort of do all of these uh, audio prompts that help us uh, pay attention um, to like what we really want you to look at since we, again, can't control what you're looking at at any given moment. We also um, use light um, as an attractor. So it's it is a lot of theatrical technique that um, we draw upon, but also looking at, you know, mechanism from games. We try to make all of the loops that you would have normally in a game completely invisible. So yes, Lucy will wait for you occasionally to make a decision, but then she has her own agency, which is a very different thing than a game, which a character would typically wait for you to make the right decision. Lucy has her own opinion about what should happen and she'll just keep going. So the story will always advance regardless of the choices that you make. And it's just this delicate balance of we want you to feel like your choices matter and they do matter, but we also want to make it feel like it's this little girl's story and she's not just going to wait for you to be the main character in her story. Yeah, most definitely. I really, um, 
<laughs> I, I got a kick out of the whole the like the uh, the handing of the object object and that loop that is the character is sitting there and trying to give this thing repeatedly it's like there's only so much you can do to get around that and then working with the process of being like oh hey there are certain things we can do to make that make that a more kind of socially socially normal um with less of that uh what is it you not uncanny valley because you think of it rather as uh the inconsistent valley yeah you know i i actually spent the first half of my career working in both visual effects and animation and sort of riding that line uh, of both of those and worked on some movies where the, the characters were entirely digital, but they also looked very human, um, human skin and realistic lighting. And that traditionally falls into this category of the uncanny valley, which was a, a term coined by a robotic professor who noted that the closer something gets to reality, the more creepy it looks um, in some cases when you don't quite hit that perfect version of a human. And in my experience, it's it does exist and people react very strongly to it, but it has a lot more to do with the inconsistencies in the character. So you may be able to render perfect skin, but the highlights in the eyes may be incorrect or the way that the hair is drawn is incorrect. And it's those contrasts and those dis differences that are actually creating the sense of uncanniness. And so that's kind of why I refer to it as the inconsistent valley. But that extends well beyond the visual nature of a, of a, a virtual character or a virtual being it's it's really about the way they talk the way they engage those social norms that we talked about so if they're handing an object to you and they just hold it out there with a dead stare that's going to break presence and that's going to be you know a clue that this thing isn't real and we do everything we can to hide those sort of technical glitches and make them natural and so you know it can be the way that she hands the object it can be how long she waits, but putting the systems in place to hide those things are, you know, incredibly sophisticated. We're now working with AI engineers to do predictive uh, math in terms of what the intention of the audience is uh, so that they, you know, if they're looking at the object and their hand is starting to move, then we can successfully measure like the likelihood of their intent to grab it versus they're just sort of staring off into space or they've glanced at it once, we think the likelihood will be less. And so we hold those loops for a long, you know, less time. It's also really awkward if the character holds something out and then takes it away right as you're reaching for it, because that has different social implications. So just yeah, to, yeah, yeah, to create this sort of seamless, um, what we call natural intuitive interaction, you know, there's a ton of math, and programming and thought underneath the hood, but we try and make it look as simple as possible. And that's, I think that's the real magic trick. Yeah. And uh, there's so many layers to that insofar as making that seem, making that seem natural. Um, but insofar as communication, so to speak a little bit about um, kind of the path that has led you to doing all this incredible stuff with Fable, you came through Skywalker Ranch, started there to working on the mate or the sequels of the Matrix, then um, spent some time with DreamWorks, and then of course into or through Facebook and Oculus, and now into the independent thing that is Fable. Through all that time, you've looked at so many different types and pieces and 
down to such a granular level of what communication looks like communication to an audience communication with character how do you feel that your own communication has changed in the last 10 to 15 years like yeah i mean it's been this wonderful ride and i've been super fortunate to watch you know really talented artists and storytellers work and it would be impossible to sort of dissect like where all those lessons came from but I, I do talk a lot about convergence and it feels like virtual reality and artificial characters are sort of where all of those things have converged. Um, and I think, yeah, from, from the spectacle of all those Star Wars movies and certainly like the early efforts on the matrix and a, a lot of the films with Robert Zemeckis, where they were just pushing the envelope of what was possible with motion capture, you start to see, I think probably the most important lesson was you start to see and figure out where the edges of technology are, where the illusion breaks. And rather than forcing what technology is capable of in the moment, use the hybrid of storytelling and technology to find that sweet spot. Like what is the technology really good at right now? And what does it really suck at right now? And then use your storytelling skills to sort of, weave through that and thread the needle because there'll be times where you really want the technology to save save the day and it's not going to because it's just not there yet and you it's easy to lie to yourself about like oh if we just push a little harder or if we spend enough time we'll get this face to look perfect and you will you'll do it for like one moment but to sustain that over the storyline um, for the entire duration of the experience is too much to ask for. And so that's when you can lean on your storytelling skills and write around the limitation in the technology. And we do that all the time in Wolves. And I think that's probably, in terms of communicating the audience, the biggest lesson that I've learned in, in sort of being on the edge of what's possible for so long is that you can really easily fall into the trap or that uncanny valley or that inconsistent valley if you just think we can do this with the tech. And in reality, Wolves is just as much, you know, thousand year old technology as it is cutting edge technology in terms of how do you tell a good story? How do you create suspense? How do you misdirect the audience? You know, we look just as much at illusion um, and mentalism as, and dance as we did at artificial intelligence and real time render engines. Um, so I think just picking up on those lessons and quite honestly, making that many mistakes where, you know, we would work for three years on a feature film and it wouldn't be successful because we were too ambitious and we tried to push the envelope too hard. Now everyone benefits as a result because the next movie is that much better. Um, and those, that's how technology works, but there is a sweet spot there where you can use other techniques to save the day. Yeah. And I'm curious, do you ever find any of kind of what you've learned in communication, like creeping into your own conversations when you're just speaking with people? Do you find yourself almost like monitoring like, oh, hey, I just did this and this communicates that? Exactly. Yeah, it's it's super awkward. And to be sort of especially right when you're in the middle of a project, you become super self-aware of all of that. And, you know, I think most people. If you ask them about just my personal day-to-day -day demeanor, I'm kind of a storyteller in general. I, I almost speak in anecdotes. And 
Um, but you start to dissect that and it's really, it's, it bleeds into every aspect of my life. You know, I'll be watching a show or try to watch stranger things last night. And when you're super tuned into storytelling, you're like, Oh, well, that's going to be this moment. And this is what's going to happen next. And you almost have to deprogram yourself, uh, in some ways just to enjoy other people's work. And I find in the heat of, you know, production, I can't watch anything because I'm so, sensitive to just the storytelling techniques and how they're doing things. I can't get into the moment because I'm just there dissecting how it works. Uh, and it takes quite a while to get back to just to a pure sort of enjoyment phase of uh, media consumption. Yeah. Um, out of curiosity, you have any tricks to do that? Because I definitely know, um, for example, with my lens, with specifically being a little bit more aware of immersive theater, when you go into an experience, you start to kind of look at things that way. Do you mm -hmm. have any like tips or tricks or anything that you personally use to kind of bump yourself back out of that so you can go back and appreciate the magic? Yeah, I think I, I do two things. I slow things down. And one of the ways I slow things down is by reading like a longer format story. I just uh, I actually read a book about books called What We See When We Read. And it was fascinating Ooh, about how we, how as we're reading, because information is much slower paced, we are constantly adjusting our view of a character because, you know, we get one sentence and then we form an image in our mind of what that character might look like. And then we get more information and I actually picked up one of my son's books recently and it, I couldn't tell if the main character was male or female for the first 10 pages. And I thought, oh, that's so brilliant because it's, it's drawing out sort of this image in your mind and you're making conclusions and you might identify with the character one way or another. Um, but there's no clear cut sort of explanation or description that we're sort of force fed in these faster formats. So I think that's one technique is just, just take a book and sort of slow down your creative process so that you're letting your imagination engage more. And then the other thing I do is I typically pick up something that I know nothing about. Um, so I've been fascinated with the concept of memory lately, and I've been just reading books on cognitive science and how memory, how memories are formed in the brain. Mm -hmm. And when you go back into a learning mode, you, you sort of let go of your assumptions of you know, the things that you're so confident in, in terms of maybe storytelling or in your case, immersive theater, which then allows you to see things in a new way. And you might relate to the thing that you're learning about. So now I see things in the context of memory, as opposed to three act structure, for example. Um, and it lets me enjoy them in a new way or in a deeper way. Um, so I think those are two techniques that I've found, but it is truly hard, especially since I'm going to so many film festivals and there's you know, just top caliber content that I want to watch and enjoy, but I'm so wrapped up in the creation of, uh, of our own work that it's really hard to digest it at the time. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, actually one experience that might, uh, kind of key into both memory and, um, and the something new side of things is if you ever have a chance, uh, while you're in LA, um, check out, uh, tales by candlelight. Um, awesome. The creator is Christoph Vester, and he actually started as a candle maker, but mm -hmm. he has spent a lot of time as uh, as a narrator, as a storyteller, and as um, as a dungeon master for Dungeons and Dragons. And so, at some point in time, he came along and kind of fused these two things. And he uses his knowledge of scent and scent as it evokes emotional reactions and evokes memory um, to to create narratives in this experience. And that's a um, 
something that you might find interesting in that realm just because of the way that he uses scent to you know as the most closely linked sense to memory um to represent places rather than individual things and then those places oftentimes are modeled off of things that find themselves into just everybody's kind of common memory and then leveraging that into narrative something super fascinating so cool uh, what yeah. That might be worth. yeah that's so cool um all right so as we are moving along here uh think it might be a good time to shift gears a little bit and potentially jump into the uh make it immersive segment awesome um so insofar as using the nebulous world of dungeons and dragons um, I'm curious what your lens for that would be insofar as kind of having a character-driven experience because it is so much about the party and about this evolving world. Like, how would you turn that into something that you have have a character anchor to work with um, as you're building your own character and understanding yourself inside of that? Yeah, I think, you know, this is something that we're actively pursuing, not directly, not Dungeons & Dragons, as a, uh, but more as a metaphor of, you know, how... How do you start to understand um, who the audience is? And I, I, I'm super fascinated by the ability of immersive theater performers in general to thin slice, like how good they are at picking up on subtle cues. Um, in fact, I was talking to one performer who does, um, you know, maybe ten shows a week. Um, maybe a few less, but over the course of her career, she's done the same scene, you know, hundreds of times, if not thousands of times. And oh, she's who, got, if you don't mind me asking, uh, her name is Elisa Davis and she's actually the character embodiment of Lucy. Oh, so the, oh the, yeah. Certainly. The, the physical, she, she does the, the physical performance of Lucy. We used motion capture. Um, and so she's, gotten to a point with um, certain scenes where you know these are organic scenes and they will unfold in a way that um, you know you can't control so you have the ability to improv you know to improv but she says that often she'll know exactly and intuitively how that scene is going to unfold within maybe the first 10 to 15 seconds of engaging wow. an audience member because of decisions and nonverbal and just like subconscious stuff. And so that I think a world like Dungeons and Dragons like opens up all of that potential. And I always think about this as, you know, a digital experience because that's what my background is. So if we're talking about, you know, how would you get essentially a computer program or a digital character to have those sorts of superpowers? Well, you start to learn about the personality of, you know, a person playing their character. Is their character introverted? Is it extroverted? Does it, is it impulsive? And that's how we, you know, those rating systems in Dungeons and Dragons, we have chaotic, chaotic, neutral. We know, you know, whether they're going to make certain decisions based on uh, their 
demeanor. We know how dexterous they are. We know what their constitution is and how strong they are. And then you have a probability system that lays on top of that. All of those things are data points that we collect, you know, as performers, as storytellers with our audience, even if you strip it down to the most basic function where we're sitting around a campfire and there's a storyteller there, that storyteller is gauging the attention of their audience. They're gauging the dilation of their eyes. They're gauging whether people are leaning forward or closing their eyes or leaning back. All of that is super relevant information to the storyteller to know how to twist and turn the story. And so for for a world like Dungeons and Dragons, where you have both audience members who are playing a role, um, sometimes they're playing themselves, sometimes they're playing um, the best version of themselves, sometimes they're playing the antithesis of themselves, they're exploring personalities that they aren't comfortable having in real life. Um, and then you have a, a master storyteller, a dungeon master, who can pick up on all of those things and is then using a basic framework to contain the story. Um, it seems like the perfect sort of format, whether, you know, the, the, uh, the fantasy element is, you know, the way you go or you, but as long as you're applying that framework, um, it seems like an amazing evolution of how storytelling is going to be in the future because it will feel like this is made just for you. And I'm, I'm very confident that the trend that we're heading towards is content that feels personal. Um, you know, for those of us who have got had the opportunity to be in immersive theater and really good immersive theater, we crave those one-on-one -on -one experiences that feel like completely like special. Um, and I think, a, you know, a world like D&D um, that is sort of picking up on all of those nonverbal cues, remembering things. Now we have the ability to have you know, natural language processing and computer vision, picking up on the things you say and on the things you wrote down or the things you draw. There's just so many magic tricks we can do with that stuff. Um, so that's kind of, that's the future that we're imagining um, and starting to work on. Yeah, I love it. And especially in the context of the whole, hey, this is a, a role-playing world where you're playing a character that is either you know close to who you are or very different and the idea of having a dungeon master or maybe an ai of some variety that can interpret the way that you are acting or failing to act like your character and then maybe like enforcing that or maybe not enforcing is that might not be the right language for it but having an agent within that as a storyteller that can be like hey well that was something strange your character wouldn't say that what's right. that about right that would be an incredibly fascinating dynamic dynamic to experience um let alone witness yeah i think it's i i can't remember where i heard um it might have been the imaginary worlds podcast but it was talking about um how DD &D allows kids to sort of try on personalities um and it's in a non-consequential way like oh what does it mean to be sort of an anarchist where you're you know, making these really bad decisions all the time and you're being really annoying and you kind of see, you'll see your peer group sort of react like, hey, we don't want that around, but it's not in a way that has like this adverse effect. You know, what does it mean to be good all the time? And, you know, does that have an outcome that isn't, you know, so it's really cool to hear about it in the frame of like this sort of adolescent trying on of skins 
and and learning who you are and i think you know humanity in general could use a little bit more of that um i'm just starting to be exposed to this nordic larping tradition which is like yeah yeah you know, like way deeper i just completely wrote off larping you know based on a youtube clip that i saw in like the early 2000s and now that i hear about these incredible two week long immersive LARPing stuff that's happening in Europe. It's just so cool and fascinating and allows you to try out ideas. Yeah. Um, and, okay. So on the note of like having this, you know, trying on different roles, um, especially being attached to like kids being able to do this and experience this um, outside of the context of childhood, um, what do you think is the value of play uh, of context where there's so much agency? Yeah, well, I'm absolutely convinced that the best way to learn is through play. And so, you know, I watch again, my son who's 10 or 11 and how effective play is at teaching concepts. And then I think about, you know, I like to mountain bike and I learn more about like lots of things when I'm out there having fun on my bike, I'm learning about the mechanics of my suspension, which is like actually physics and um, you know, how like traction works and I'm, and I get more into it, but there's always a fun element that's encouraging me to go faster or to do more. And I think in general, the more context that you can convey through experience, the more you can, you know, benefit from that. So in terms of, teaching a concept, teaching empathy, uh, being able to relate to other people um, from different cultures, from different experiential backgrounds, like this is the place to do that. And so, you know, I was around for the the web revolution. That was kind of the first job I had. Um, and I saw how fast the, you know, the internet and the web sort of became pervasive in terms of like it, I definitely remember a moment where there was one place you went and you could see every website on a single page. And then two years later, like that was how you did everything. And I feel like especially virtual reality and augmented reality is going to have that same sort of impact on our lives. We're just not quite at that tipping point where of course you're going to like check out the place you want to go on vacation by putting on a headset and walking through that space. Of course, you're going to, you know, learn how to fix this thing experientially by trying it out in VR first or having someone show you like, here's the place you're going to screw up and this is going to fix it. So in terms of like everything we do, um, I know that we feel really strongly that this will be the way that we learn together, that we communicate together. Um, that we will, you know, be assisted. Like right now, we have these devices that are very crude, like Alexa and Siri. But you know, eventually, those are going to be characters with full personalities. Um, I don't know if you watched the Netflix series Altered Carbon, which is an amazing yes, book. Yes, yeah. I did. That was actually really excellent. But, I didn't know it was a book too. Yeah, it's it's a really cool book, um, and uh, the series is much is an expanded universe of that, but. My favorite character in that is Poe, who's the you know concierge of a hotel, but he's really the artificial intelligence that runs the hotel, but he's taking on the personality of Edgar Allan Poe. And so he's, he's basically like an Alexa, 
but he's got his own agency. He's got his own personality. He, you know, he has an opinion about things and he delivers it in a character that is sort of predictable and, and feels like very well intentioned and thought out. And I think that's a future that seems inevitable where we have, you know, if you think about the evolution of these characters that we're going to interact with, they are the way that we are going to sort of interact with these mounds of data that we're accumulating now. Um, Cause yeah. it's a human interface. It's something we've, we've evolved to, to be really good at um, communicating with. Yeah. And I mean, the, the constant line that's been floating around for a minute now is like all of these jobs in it are so suddenly going to become, Hey, you're not building these systems. You are there to explain what it, what it is on earth that these systems are actually doing. Yeah. Um, and of course it makes sense that the most, the, the interface that makes the most sense is a character of some variety, something that you can understand on that level, um, because those are that's the way that we naturally process large volumes of data. Yeah, um, and and I think yeah, I think theatrics and emotion and all of all of that is going to be just as relevant as just the raw data crunching of it, you know, because those are the things that we pick up on is like the tone of voice and the delivery of a line, and like right now it's really easy to disregard Alexa or Siri because you see the the seams of the technology constantly. It breaks presence constantly. And therefore it's easy to feel like this isn't an entity that I trust. It's not an entity that I respect necessarily. And once you add emotion into that, um, it's going to be a lot more reciprocal. I think it's going to be a two way street where you're learning and can teach. Um, yeah, so I see a lot of crossover and convergence happening with all of this stuff. Uh, again, it just feels inevitable. It feels not tomorrow, but it feels like it's going to happen. And so, you know, kind of fascinated with being a part of that. Which is in and of itself somewhat of a siloed perspective because I, I think that that's certainly true. But the feeling that it's inevitable, I think, is something that many have not necessarily latched on to given the whole, you know, future is here, just not evenly distributed. Right. Um, we're based in Michigan, uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan. And so from our perspective or from the perspective that is kind of the cultural zeitgeist here versus that of San Francisco, um, the feeling of inevitability there is, is still white ways down the pipe. And so far as, you know, speaking about these things, if someone doesn't have the background context for why this makes sense, they're like, Oh, that's, that's, that's crazy. That doesn't make sense. What do you mean? Yeah. It's um, funny though. They, they still come true, you know, and all, like all those things that were science fiction to us when we were growing up, you know, are starting to just show up and we, and that happens sort of incrementally and not in an obvious way, but you pick up an iPhone and you're like, this is absolutely a device that was on Star Trek. There's no question. Right. It does more than they even imagined it would on Star Trek. You know, my watch is monitoring my heart rate constantly. It's warning me if it falls below a certain amount, it knows when I have had a hard impact, it can automatically, you know, it's just crazy how incremental but constant the march is of technology. And so, yeah, it's, it is, it is from where you're standing, uh, the vantage point that you have. And I think we were particularly fortunate because virtual reality was this, sort of super magnetic moment four years ago where all these industries flocked at once. And so we just got overstimulated with potential futures. Um, and we're kind of still riding on a buzz from that. Yeah. And a lot of potential futures that were 
sometimes very optimistic, but sometimes also neglectful of what the technology was actually capable of because totally. everybody got excited about it yeah. without actually maybe having the knowledge of, hey, this is what this actually takes. Yeah. Um, okay. So though speaking to said potential futures, um, you had uh, spoken of your uh, co-founder, um, Edward Saatchi, as a bit of a provocateur in this right. Mm-hmm. Um with one of the things he had poked out was Lucy is the next operating system, which makes a world of sense. But what are some of the other things? Um, you said he's always throwing things like that kind of into your sphere. Um, what are some of the other things that he has uh, poked at or pointed at in that right? <laughs> the uh, the operating system one is is certainly a big one. And just to give context, it's like, okay, well, you know, there's thousands of people at Google and Microsoft working on something like that. And we're a small team. So how can we even start a process like that? Um, but that's what's so great about the relationship is that he sort of, he does throw out these, these sort of grandiose ideas. Um, and at first we kind of reject them because we're pragmatic problem solvers and we kind of, they, they seem too big to solve in some ways, but I, at some point, you know, in our relationship, I wrote down this, like, okay, I have to give myself permission to think about the future. Because if you're only thinking about how to solve something in a six, six month increment and, and deliver it, you're never going to get past sort of just this constant implementation phase. Um, and what we're really talking about is how would you even architect something like that? Um, so, you know, yeah, character does make a lot of sense as the way that we will interface the world um, and is likely to happen. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be a visual version constantly in our frame of reference. It could be just a voice, but really it's it's the idea of memory and persistence that is provocative there. Because if a character has an ongoing memory of you and remembers the conversations you've had and remembers the things that you're scared of or your personal preferences. It's the kind of thing that levels up access to all the data that we do interact with. Um, But there have been other uh, conversations around, um, you know, artificial intelligence, we talked recently about um, this idea of transhumanism, the moment where people are like, yeah, I don't really want my body anymore. I'm just going to upload myself and live forever. Um, and that's, you know. Yeah, there's a video clip floating around <laughs> for audiences that actually touches on that. It's a very, like, comical but strangely contextually real conversation between a, a daughter and her parents about that kind of thing, which is definitely worth checking out. I'll link that up in the show notes, but yeah. And I think, you know, I'm, I, again, I'm sort of a, a practical problem solver by nature. Um, so my inclination is to sort of reject that stuff. It's like, yes, that will happen. Probably not in my lifetime. Um, but it's really good to sort of start at the end and work your way backwards. And if you're not doing that in the storytelling, then you're going to fail, right? Because if you don't know where the story ends, how can you possibly set it up properly? And so that's been a technique that we've been using uh, more recently is to let's start at the end of this journey. You know, there's a popular sci-fi theory that says like the reason we probably will never encounter an alien life form is because by the time a civilization is capable of space travel, they've said, like, why would we do that? Let's just upload ourselves to a virtual world that is exactly what we want it to be and live there forever. Um, And so if you start at the end, 
and work your way back, it's like, what are all the incremental steps? What has to be invented? What's likely to be invented? Who's not looking at those things? Who is looking at those things? Should we partner with them? You know, who can we learn from? Who's the expert in this field? And that's been really informative because as we take on these more and more ambitious, you know, problems to solve, we can't do it without talking to people who actually know something about these topics because it will take us 10 years to teach ourselves about nonverbal communication, but we could have a three hour conversation with an expert on that and learn just enough to get us like moving in the right direction. And then what I found is those things start to feed off each other. You know, the nonverbal mixed with the artificial intelligence mixed with the third act story structure yields this like really cool sort of hidden magic trick that is unexpected. Um, and that's the thing about magic tricks is like, you don't actually think there's a wizard performing that real magic up there. You know, you're being fooled. You just can't figure out how you're being fooled. And that for me was, you know, when I saw Jurassic Park in the theater, I had to figure out how that magic trick was being done because that dinosaur looked real. Um, and that's what put me on this path. But, you know, I think, yeah, going for the crazy idea is kind of a fun exercise and it brings you back eventually to the problem at hand. I love that, though. It all started with the T-Rex. Totally did. <laughs> um, all right. So I know we are coming up on time here. Um, I have just one or two more brief questions before we start wrapping up. Um, just to make sure, are you good on time constraints for like another five minutes or so here? Sure. Awesome. Awesome. Um, and of course, please let me know at any point in time if you have to cut. Um, so on the note of um, us moving from kind of materialism to experientialism to wanting really unique and personalized experiences, um, what what do you feel like kind of is propelling our culture that way? And I know this is a really ambiguous question, but I'm, I'm just curious if you have any thoughts um, in that direction as far as why that's happening. Yeah, it's... Um... Uh, obviously, the internet has really changed the way that we see the world. I think um, it goes from localism. So just to back up and sort of explain that sort of premise a little bit more. Um, you know, when I grew up, I was you know, a kid of the 80s, and that was the things generation. Like you had to have fancy cars uh, to get attention or a big house or fancy clothes. And all of the entertainment reinforces that go back and watch a movie from the eighties. And, you know, those were the things to strive for. Um, but it was also a local thing. You sort of like your social group was either the town you lived in or, you know, the city that you were a part of and you, you know, the newspaper would inform you with a, a fairly significant delay of events and you'd only hear then what was being, sort of um, curated for you in terms of information. And now we're living in, you know, what is sort of referred to as this experiential generation or the experiences generation. And the internet has heavily informed that and specifically things like Facebook and Instagram have informed that. So it's instead of the big car and the big house, it's um, check out this like one of a kind meal I'm having at this fancy restaurant or, um, you know, check this place out. I'm on vacation here. Here's a selfie of me. And selfie is probably the best indication of that. Um, but we're much more informed globally about what's happening. News is like happening so fast. 
we're almost desensitized to it, but we hear about the smallest thing in the farthest away place almost immediately. And I think that's changing how we look at information um, and what we value. I think it's less about, you know, the spectacle of being locally the wealthiest person or having the fastest car. And it's more about like, look, I've experienced more of the world, uh, this world that we know much more about now. Um, I've had this cuisine and things like that. And so we're trending towards um, hopefully a more empathetic um, model, which is, you know, I'm putting myself in the context of others. I'm experiencing other people's experiences and cultures. Um, and that's a bragging right right now. So the motivation is still questionable, but the net result is a positive one in that we're seeing more of the world. We're hearing more of the world. Um, we're unifying as a culture. And I think that trend will continue um, towards now here's a thing that is specifically for me. It understands who I am. It's, uh, it's catered to my needs, both in a positive and a negative way. It might know what I'm afraid of. It might know what I love. And the, you know, as a storyteller and as an educator and as, um, you know, someone that wants to connect people to other people, those are incredibly powerful tools. So I, I think that trend sort of, what I see as this either tailored generation or custom generation is what we will experience next. And, you know, we, we consume shows like Game of Thrones now because we get 20 to 40 hours with a character. Think of what that would be like, you know, two to four years with a character or 10 years with a character. And then that character would remember everything you ever said to it and, have experienced things directly like in a Dungeons and Dragons experience with you. And so there's direct context and memory about those events. And then you can weave that into the storytelling or the educational process. So, um, you know, whether we call that the unique generation or the contextual generation, I think that's where we're headed. And I think that's the potential of AI is there um, to do that. And it's only going to get better. Uh, so that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of where we, where we are. Definitely. Um, thank you for that perspective. Um, and just as a very last question to cap us off here, um, for anybody who would want to learn a little bit more about kind of this level of communication and storytelling and all the work that you guys have done, is, is there anywhere, any books, any resources, lectures, et cetera, um, that you would point people towards um, who might want to learn more uh, about this kind of new world that is unfolding before us? Yeah, I think we, um, if we haven't already, we'll certainly list a bunch of the stuff up on our website, which is fable-studio.com. And we're also hosting um, the first Virtual Being Summit in a couple weeks here in San Francisco, and that's uh, virtual-beings.ai. Um, and that's uh, sort of the first time, like all of these companies that are experimenting with these characters that are becoming aware in different ways, um, which is super cool to just see there's like a whole industry starting and without really even talking to each other. And so we're going to gather all those people together and, and chat about uh, goals and hopes and objectives and concerns um, just moving forward. So those are two resources. Um, trying to think if there's anything else uh 
there's definitely a lot of like little articles floating out around the, the web about wolves and we'll try and pull those together on our website as well because we we do sort of break down our process and share a lot of like how and why we did the stuff that we did um so yeah definitely wonderful and then of course you just mentioned a couple of places that people could find you um anything that you would like to ask of the audience or place you would point them to to experience what you guys are doing or kind of learn specifically about uh fable studios yeah so wolves will be released uh very soon on the oculus store um and in it's at various festivals as well we just uh finished showing part one at tribeca and part two will be out uh probably in the fall sometime well, wonderful wonderful all right. Well, with that, I think we are coming to a close of our time. I just want to say thank you again so much for uh, taking a bit of your afternoon here to chat. And I think that our audience will most definitely um, appreciate your thoughts on this matter. Um, it's a very different lens and frame of reference, but I think it very much is the the forefront of what immersive is becoming. Awesome. That's really awesome to talk to you. As well. All right. Have cool. an absolutely wonderful afternoon. You too. And of course, for any audience listening, you can find all of the references and mentions that we have touched on throughout the show at immersionnation.com slash podcast. And until next time, thank you for listening. Calling all immersive adventurers, explorers, connoisseurs, and artists. The immersive revolution is just beginning. All that is to say, we would love any feedback that you might have on the show. What do you want to hear more of, less of? Anyone in particular you'd like us to have on the show? I would love to hear your thoughts. So please rate us, review us, or just drop us a line on the website at immersionnation.com. I always love having conversations about this wide and wild world that we are both living in and creating. Once again, this is the Immersion Nation podcast. Thank you for joining us in this adventure.